Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Just Slap Podcast. We are in beautiful Bradenton, Florida, and we got a first time, two time guest on the Just Slap Podcast. Yes. First time, uh, the legend himself, Coach David Amy, also known as, better known as Coach Red. Coach, thank you so much for joining us today. Alex, Stephen, thanks again. Uh, looking forward to this one. It's been a uh... About 18 months since the last one, and uh, I really enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to this one. Thanks for coming. Your your episode also is our most viewed podcast episode. I wow. don't know if you knew that. So I, I didn't got, know that, it but got, uh, it popped. There was a lot of chatter. Well, it was nice. <laughs> Thank you so chatter. much. It was a real fun a fun thing to do, and I'm looking forward to this one. There's been a lot happened over the last 18 months. Yeah, so. and we're and we're definitely going to get into it. Before we start, I think it's important we talk about how much you've helped us uh, in terms of our process. I mean, half of the guests, whenever whenever we get like a big guest on, like our fans or our friends that watch, they're like, how did you get, how did you manage to get this guest? And I just want to set the record straight, 50%, at least 50% of those guests, how we got them is Coach Red. Yeah. So let's start there. That's the, that's the first thing. But second part is um, we got the chance to, to kind of film some awesome content that either is out right now or is going to be out by the time you guys are watching this episode uh, at IMG. So thank you so much for setting this up. I mean, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure for us, and also like a kind of a dream come true for me because I remember when I was growing up, I used to watch countless videos, like literally every day. I was kind of obsessed with IMG. I wanted to come to IMG. And this so. is your first time here. And this is my this first, first time, time here. This is your first wow. time here. Yeah. So it's it's awesome. Well, we had we had an incredible two days. I mean, yeah. talk about it was the, full. It was it was full packed. I mean, you know. It's just like different types of videos that we filmed, interviews, you know, day in the life that we filmed with you yesterday. It was so fun to be on court. I mean, it threw me back. It threw me back. Yeah, I know. And also, on top of this, I wore this shirt. The Gatorade. Exactly. Yeah, we, we the Gatorade I'm going to put up a picture. I'm going to put up a picture. But what, nine, eight years ago, yeah. um, I was right. in your group as a camper. Uh, I got to experience it once again yesterday. Uh, but I wore this shirt because you gave me this shirt. I have a picture with you. I'm going to try to find it. I'm going to try my best, but I'm going to pull it up. I think we should say, too, though, yesterday's practice was not a staged practice. Right. You just jumped in to what we were doing that yeah. day, and we treated it like another camper. Yeah. Just yeah. a very good player yeah, in the yeah. camper, giving Alex a lot of credit. He's <laughs> a very know. good player. Yeah, so at one one weak moment on the overheads, but other than that, yeah, he was yeah. very solid. Yeah. yeah, my favorite moment, my favorite moment, and I don't know if the video's out yet, but there's a moment where I, I arrive and Coach Red lines everyone up, and I get like an idiot, like a complete idiot. Everyone's on the right side of the net, I get on the left side of the net, yeah. and the kid next to me, he's like, you better get on this side of the net. <laughs> he's like, you better get on this, and Coach Red is, what's wrong, what's going on? He's like, what's wrong with what we have going on here? Get on this side of the net, give you me a push. You know, keep like, the concentration <laughs> where we're at, you know, so it was good. So, and, uh, so, so It's a lot good. of fun, though, yeah. you know. That's awesome. So good. And I'm going to ask you just quickly before we get into all the other stuff, I need a breakdown of what you thought of his game. Okay. Alex's game? Uh, Alex's game. No, I but I, I saw honest. it nine years ago, and I remember it. It's, he's improved a lot. Yeah. Stephen, I can't, I, I can't hit him hard. He's improved. I, I mean, really there's a lot of areas that are better. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, it's, it's good. He could play very solid from the baseline, much stronger than you were. The ball speed is much better than when you were when I saw you as a young boy. So I thought you were consistent then, and you always move good. Yeah. But really solid. 
playing from the wide parts of the court, it was yeah. good. Really Bollies good. and overheads, though, not so good. Right? Yeah, we need to work he, on finishing the point. It was, <laughs> a, it was a disaster. A I can't say it anything. Anyway, Lass, okay? There's a story. There's a story where we're playing the biggest match of our career. My last we're college match, by the way. His last college match. And we had a match point. And I had a sitter volley. Sitter. 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 On top sitter. of the net. Hacked match it. point. Match Hacked point it into the net or something? Or what? Match point to win the doubles oh. point against the Dayton, who was the number two or three right. in the yeah. conference right. at the time. Full-time program, everything. I just match point and completely just... And the just craziest part about that is I saw that ball coming and I'm like, we won the match. It's over. It's over. It's done. Nah, like I, I the, immediately that that focus that I had gone. Well, here's the good news: that happens to everybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we can't just say it's just yeah. Alex. Yeah. yeah. No, that's true. That's good. good. But listen, Coach. A lot of stuff has happened since since the last time you jumped on the podcast. Um, I think it's fitting that we start uh, start the podcast by talking about Nick's passing. Yeah. I, let me just say, in 18 months, it's been a lot, yeah. and Nick's passing is the biggest. Mm -hmm. But ju just think. This building that we're sitting in with five indoor courts on this side, uh, two, four basketball, a big, huge facility on that side opened. Nick's memorial is downstairs, mm -hmm. a little Hall of Fame-like tribute wall to him. Nick's passing is the biggest thing. Yeah. The tennis program has grown, and we were the company was just sold to our new owners, uh, Nard Angular, which owns... I believe somewhere over 80 boarding schools around the world. Mm -hmm. So Nick's passing is one thing, but his legacy will continue with the new yeah. owners because I think it's a really big opportunity for us to continue to grow. No, that's that's what we wanted to, I mean, it's so obvious that, I mean, Nick is such a, I mean, this, this academy has grown beyond right. belief. I mean, it's unbelievable, like you just said, but Nick's presence is still so felt. Do you know what right. I mean? It's, it's like really like, he yes. is, he's still very much the centerpiece um, can you talk about just, I guess, the, the effect uh, that, that he has had and then also just, I guess, like, how is his legacy? How do you envision it living on? Well, I, I, think, I think our CEO, Tim Panetti, and who formed a relationship with Nick over the last three years until his passing, and, uh, you know, his legacy will continue because everybody in our, in our leadership believes in that so it's not going away mm -hmm. his program development from the very start of it we're still running the majority of our program is still running the core nick military training system yeah. and that goes from the very beginners all the way up to the pros so i think there are many ways but it, to keep it simple is on the court the voluntary method will continue yeah. off the court the leadership of the academy img academy is going to maintain him his nick's values and all and what he wanted to do in a very good way to honor him and i think that's a good thing i think nick's effect on tennis overall though when you get it like how did nick in his time on on this earth and i i I personally believe he's in heaven looking down on us and still remains, uh, how do I say, believing that power in tennis is critical. Mm -hmm. So if I, I've been asked before, like, what's one thing Nick had an effect in at tennis? Power. Because mm -hmm. he believed you had to be able to put the ball away when it landed short. 
his voluntary put away forehand, he developed it. And his theory was really basic. If the ball lands short inside the service line, you should put it away. And you should not be worried if students miss. You must train that uh, area and let them miss. But they need to know how to hit the ball hard to do that. So simple concept, right? It's not complicated. It's not scientific. It's very basic. So he developed drills to do it. One included Alex was in yesterday. And uh, that's a huge part of what we see in tennis today. Think about it. When Nick first started that, it was wooden rackets. I mean, it's hard to hit the ball really hard with a wooden racket back in, you know, the 70s. But that's when it started with, you know, with Jimmy Harris in the late 80s with the put-away forehand. And it progressed through every area era of tennis development, going to graphite, aluminum, graphite, and the modern-day rackets. So it's only magnified all those things. Does that does it, does that make sense? Absolutely. And it, it's something that I feel like has, I mean, like you said, he, he was ahead of his time. Way ahead. And in a sense that, like, he's focusing on that, you know, years ago, whereas right. now people are starting to recognize, look at all these players that are hitting with immense power. Right. That, like, now if you're not hitting with power, you're not going to be behind. You're, you're way behind. It's, it's funny. Not, close Alex, you're exactly right. Not, not to get too technical yeah. on tennis. Get technical but, on this, right. But, but. <laughs> Develop power is more than just hitting the one put away forehand. We do racket speed, racket speed drills to create more power. That includes the angle shot, the hard angle that lands on inside the service line, opens the court. Swing volleys. Nick, used to, we still do a lot of swing volleys within the program. And a swing volley in itself is developing power. So all those things, you know, we also back people up way back in the court, almost to the fence, and ask them to hit the normal cross-court forehand off a toss ball, but make it land near the baseline. So you have to generate enormous power to hit it that deep. So Nick's effect on developing power was the mentality of putting the ball away and then drills and incorporating it into certain shots to get the desired result. I think that was huge. You know, he had a couple other things just to kind of like graze over him because we won't have time to go into them all in detail. But he also believed you had to be a complete person to be a really good tennis player. So Nick's effect was to develop the whole person. Now, that was mental, physical, uh, spiritual, everything. And, you know, inside the walls of, of the IMG Academy now, there's no other place in the world that has all the support structure to develop that. This is the, this leads me perfectly into my next question, which is kind of a question for you, and then if you can touch on it as well, Coach Red. So I can, I mean, I'm, I might concern myself from the old school a little bit, but yeah. I consider Voluntary Tennis Academy, IMG, the mecca of tennis, Yeah, in my opinion, it, right? It, which it is. So, so for you, having kind of been here these last few two days and, and kind of seen the program, train, see the facilities, can you talk to me a little bit about like the complete package that it, IMG offers? It's insane. It's, yes. I, and you know what's funny is I was, I was telling Steven this a little bit, uh, just like br- briefly touched on it. I was like, you know, when I was here nine years ago, I didn't really get it. Like I, I was like, oh, this is great. Like I'm playing tennis and there are these dorms and I go to class and all this stuff. But I was just a, a you know, a 14 year old right. who was just kind of going through, through the motions. Right. Yeah, I, right. I, you know, I, I 
it, it just didn't really hit. Go hit where me. you're supposed to go. Yeah. That unit. Right. Yeah. I understand. These last two days, like doing the tour, you know, and, and then also, you know, the, the, yesterday, the entire day, seeing the camp and being a part of it, you know, it is really like you have touched all the points. You're, you're developing uh, players on court. You're getting them to work hard. You're working on technique. Then you're having fun at, you know, also like making sure that you put fun in there. Right. Then once they're done there, they're going to classroom. They're talking strategy. They're talking right. all these things. We're talking, you know, uh, just things that from specialists, you know what I mean? That, that right. you would not have experts. access anywhere. Experts that you would not have uh, access anywhere else. And then on top of that, you go to, you know, if you're a, a camper or you're a full-time athlete, you go to a dorm and you've got volleyball, you've got, uh, you know, basketball, you've got golf, you've got soccer, you've got, so you're, you're, you're developing other parts of your athletic ability right. as well. So it's really like, it's not just, oh, you're on court and then everything you do is, is, is 100% to do with tennis. Right. It 100% is like a full picture kind yeah. of Can, deal. Is it, this is a good time, I think to call about the ecosystem, yes. if it's okay, all okay. right? Because we kind of call it an ecosystem. Is yeah. Nick's belief originally was he needed, you needed to have a sub, full support structure. So he brought in sports psychology into tennis. He was one of the first to do that. Now it's, now it's uh, modern day in the real world outside of IMG. Uh, Igor Swiatek has her own um, mental, mental pro- yeah. coach with her. Mm-hmm. So I think Nick's effect, going back to that, without Nick bringing in the first time in an academy setting a sports psychologist, I'm not sure of how that progresses on. So he was originator of that. I think it's it's gone into now not just our mental conditioning program. We have a whole division called APD, which incorporates mental, physical, nutrition, NCSA, everything, college placement, everything into a whole ecosystem. Our academic institution on campus is a higher learning academic institution that's now enabling our students to go to the highest level academic institutions in the country. Mm -hmm. So it's all in one and you you have the ability to excel and be great at all these different areas as an athlete, as a person, as a student, and the whole APD system, if you're really motivated and take advantage of it, I mean, it's like a professional player. Anybody that comes to the IMG Academy has the same everything in one spot that a professional player is trying to bring into their team. And we see the modern-day pro player has a team now of different things on their team. I mean, Novak has it, Roger had it, everybody does Mm -hmm. in the top. Whereas now, if you're a customer of IMG and you're in a program, we're specifically talking about tennis, Mm -hmm. but that is the same for all of our sports, which I find really interesting. It's unbelievable. Big project. Yeah. 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 And on top of that, I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting to me because it's like, I feel like, and like I said, when I was 14 or 15, I didn't really recognize it, but it's like, right. I feel like if you're someone who is a focused kid, right. like if you are a hardworking, Motivated, you see the picture, right. you see the, you see the, you have the vision. If you're at ING, it's a game changer. Yep. Like it really is a game changer. You right. are presented, like you said, with all those things, like a, like a, like a top pro is. Right. And it's like, I mean, I, you are, you have all the resources to do what you need to do. You can I take mean, it. 
It's like you so paved the way. You, you can take it road. as far yeah. as your ability will allow it. Yeah. And what's funny is we've seen over and over and over that people excel far ahead and reach higher than what their perceived ability was supposed to be. I think that's a great thing because I personally, you know, I'm asked a lot, hey, what do you think about this player? Where do you think, how high can he be, you know? I don't, I don't project. I don't do that. I don't have a crystal ball, okay? I'm not in that business. I'm in the business of trying to get somebody to be the best they can be. And then over time, the results organically play out. And I think we give here at IMG, we, we give that to every single student in camp full-time and onwards as a pro. Yeah. I mean, it's quite funny that all of our pros have, you know, the same ability to use the same things as the, the, the little junior on the court. I mean, it's scaled from all the way down. It's, it's amazing. And it's, it's, it's so interesting to see how, like, this formula has produced the results as the generations have gone up. Right. You're talking about the early days with Agassi, right. Courier, Arias, all those guys, right? To like the the Sharapova days, to like now the new the new generation that's coming up, and it's 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 a formula that has worked and and continues to continues to work as the new yeah, generations come in. It, Steven, it's really hard to do this conversation and not miss names, yeah, right? Yeah. You or me, even you know, I'm, I'm started 39 years in June, so to go back over the 39 years, I've been here and try to name the names, it's but it's been a cycle. What we call, we call it a cycle of players. Mm -hmm. Nick used to use that word, you know, hey, we got a new, we're starting a new cycle of players. I think sometimes he was right on some, sometimes there was, you know, you missed. Sometimes you didn't quite know. But you named a few how it started yeah. a little before Jimmy Arias. I mean, I think Nick's, you know, Brian Godfrey and yeah. Jimmy Arias, Aaron Crickstein. Then it turned to the time frame of Agassi Courier, right? And there were so many during that time. Um, it continued to cycle, if you remember. There was, uh, before Tommy and, uh, Tommy and Anna Konnikova were right around the same time frame, okay? There was a cycle of players before that. Paul Henry Mathieu from France. Yeah. It, uh, Xavier Melise came out right around that time. On the girls' side, Sabine Lasicki. Michelle DeBrito, Heather Watson. These were names that were all here. Maria Sharpova, who you named, Jelena Jankovic, who reached number one. Yeah. And what's so funny is some of those players from that time frame came straight out of the groups. Yeah. Like they did not – some of those players, Sabine was in the, the program. Sabine Lasicki has, has had a nice career. You know, it's not just the number ones in the world. Yeah. Many of those players came straight from the program. Jelena Jankovic – reached number one in the world, was just in the groups. So these these players, it was so competitive. That's one thing we talk about Nick's effect. It's so competitive that you push each other to different levels. And the names of the cycle of players, as we're talking about, all push themselves to different levels. And it continued to build through Tommy and them into the next generation of players that continue to go on all the way through to a new cycle of players modern day right now with you have Sebastian Corder who based as based out of here all all his years his dad based out of here 
Jerry Zhang is the latest up-and-coming player that home base is here, and you we've been working with on and with his coaches too for the last three to four years. So it's a new. He's 18. He's the highest ranked 18 uh, year old in the ATP, yeah. and producing really good results right now. So the cycle of players will continue, and then you go down into the youth. We have some young ones at 12, 13, and 14 that we believe will be the next cycle of players after. Yeah. I, I'm sure I missed a lot of names because so we, we went through a research project and we think there's been upwards of 500 players over the years that reached inside the top 100. And we could have missed someone that's been actually associated maybe to count how many were 250 or how many played high-level college tennis that chose to go into business but didn't play? It's 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 impossible to to find an exact number. Well, you know who really impressed me was uh, Shintaro. Yes. Shintaro, former number one junior, won Wimbledon. Former number one junior, uh, one junior Wimbledon in 2019. Currently sitting inside the top 200. Right. 20 years old. Developing at a really good pace. I mean, talking to the guy was like he is just. Uh, He's so mature, so focused, um, but also like he understands. He's just like I just well, I'm just gonna give my best every day, and like I'm not gonna worry about. Okay, Alex, I gotta correct something because you mentioned Shitaro. Yeah. We gotta talk about the K Nishikori effect. Yes, because K was number four in the world, and he came in through the cycle of players after Tommy, mm -hmm. but before the Jerry's and the Cordas. Now, K was four in the world. It came through a, a, a project called Marita Fund, which it. Shintaro followed Kay in the same project. And Mr. Morita uh, from Japan was head of Sony, and he provides the, the players the opportunity to come here. Part of that opportunity is they must clear goals, hard set ranking goals to continue in that program because it's designed to produce a sports person that is successful to grow the game of tennis in Japan. So in order to do that, you actually have to have ranking goals. So just touching on two, K is a, one of the, is the biggest success project, reaching four in the world. And then Shintaro's another one of that project that's going through, and as you said, 200. And we have a new group of young ones that are here right now, a, a girl that's 13 and a boy that's about 17 that we think also is going through that clearing each ranking goal that they need to clear in order pressure. to stay. It's a lot of pressure, but it's competitive. Yeah. And if you do it, you get used to it. And I think that's part of the legacy of the Dick Bolletary method. Yeah. Compete hard, get used to fighting for every, you know, you got to be high ranked in your group. Yeah. In order to play higher players, you got you to be high ranked within your own little group. I think it's a good thing you get used to the pressure and it helps you down the road no matter what level you go to. I, mean, I, I think we may have talked about this, but the, the, the idea of like the, the hot shot kid out of whatever state right. coming here thinking right. they're the best and then the first day that they're here, they're like, oh, wow. It's a, we got, a big pool. We got, big we got pool of players. Yeah. So you're constantly competing against the best Yeah, the it's best. good healthy competition. No, yeah. I wouldn't call it – there's a big thing between healthy competition and unhealthy competition. Yeah. Healthy competition is you're trying – your best to compete to be the best you can be in your group. I think it's a good thing. We're not in, we're not in participation awards. Okay, guys. Yeah. You know I'm not a believer in it. Love it. I don't 
I don't uh, practice it. Nick didn't practice it. But on the other side of that, we also into healthy competition. Every match is a chance to improve. So if you're not the best in you know, your group right now, it's a chance to improve and get the next cycle of matches. Then you can try to move up and be higher ranked. That's a good thing. And we do a great job of trying to provide healthy competition to our students and educate them if they don't win and keep a balanced win-loss record. I, one, one thing I think is missing outside is a quality win-loss record. Because I think when I'm outside of IMG and people are talking, they always want, I hear it all the time, I want my player to play the best players. I'm like, okay, that's good. But what happens if they're not winning enough? Because you learn a lot when you lose, but you also gain confidence when you win. What's wrong with that philosophy, right? So we want to try to work off a four-to-one win-loss ratio. You never perfect. Could be two and two. You could be five and zero oh one time. If you are, you're going to get a challenging match, right? But if you're zero oh and four, that's I'm not sure that's the healthiest position to be in. That's not the healthy competition. You could play another one that if you can win, you gain some confidence back and get that record back a little better. To me, I like that formula, and we try to practice that here. It's not so much move up or down like it, it was maybe many, many years ago, but it's finding the right balance of a good win-loss percentage, and we keep win-loss percentage. Yeah. I actually, one thing I'm curious to get your opinion on is IMG, I mean, like we mentioned, the, the facilities are incredible, the program, I mean, mm-hmm. you've got this ecosystem that you've developed right. and, and years of experience producing the best players. But now, I mean, it's getting so big, right? right. Like there's so many students. I mean, right. I think it's like 1,400 campers every right. week and, you know, hundreds of students that are full-time. Right. Do you think that, like, is there a, a downside to expanding? Like, do you feel like when there it was smaller, there was a little bit more concentration? Or do you feel that you've been able to maintain no, that concentration? I, I, I understand your question. It's a, it's a really good question that should be asked. It's actually the complete opposite. Really? The bigger it's got, the more intimate it's got. The bigger it's got, the more the delivery inside the programs, all the sports, have become more focused and structured and individualized. You might say, well, that's impossible, but it's not. It's the complete opposite, okay? We have, at times, less people on the court. We have times individual attention built into the program. We use the full day. I mean, we start on tennis sometimes at 7. We don't end till 5.30 or 6. That's Nick Balateri in his old days. Mm-hmm. But it's reorganized and structured in a way that the delivery is such that it's more uh, smaller, yet the numbers are bigger. Well, the, the fact that you have more students, I mean, you're able to have more coaches and have more. Yeah, I mean, that's, that makes sense. It's more coaches in the organization of it and the delivery methods are now where inside the structure, the number and ratios and everything about it is more individualized. And that ecosystem we talked about is a part of that. So your question is really good and should be asked. But the answer is completely the, the opposite, opposite of what think. you would expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not to say, does somebody ever come here and this not be the right fit? Of course, I think that happens anyway. That's tennis, right? Mm-hmm. 
but we give them every opportunity to make it the right fit. And you can individualize inside that program to get the needs that you might need to make it better. And I think when Nick first started, even though it may have not been quite as big, those numbers were bigger and he was trying to figure it out, you know, and over time we were able to, uh, I would say, modernize the voluntary system into what's now the way it's delivered, which is really, really, really spot on, even though the academy itself has grown. And look, the academic piece is huge, Steve. Alex, look, the academic piece is huge. The focus is equally as big on our academic side. So a student that that comes here now is really balanced. Right. Well, you guys have a whole high, I mean, it's a whole high school. Right? Full school. Yeah. We'll, I mean, maybe we'll go check out the school, but it's it's like a full-blown yeah. school. It's, the only experience I have is from the guys that I know that came right. from MG, and I saw them in college academics. Yeah. And it's like, you would kind of expect coming from like a big athletic right. program, so you'd expect them like, okay, like they're very, they were very focused on tennis, maybe they weren't focused at school. Yeah. They were the best students that we had on the team. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? highest GPAs on the team. Yeah, so that's great to hear. At a very good school in Fordham, you should mention. So that's a very, very, very good school. So if our students are able to excel at that school, that's a great thing to hear. That's actually such a good point. I like didn't think what the two students with the highest GPAs were IMG students. It's a big focus of ours. I think our critics, you know, yeah. can try to hit us on that, yeah. but it's a really uh, the the actual yeah. results speak for itself. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting is you can compete in tennis, and you can also compete in academics. I, I think sometimes you compete with yourself, right? Absolutely. Trying to get better. You're not competing in academics with the person yeah. sitting in the classroom with you. You're actually competing with yourself. Yeah. So we do compete. It's a big part of what Nick believed, and we do it all in many different areas. Yeah. But it's just healthy competition. This, this, this next question is more so for like the 12-year-old Steven that's watching this podcast right now that wants to come to IMG or has thought about coming to IMG. What are the non-negotiables of somebody, that, like the qualities that they need to have? I know you mentioned competitiveness, but just maybe if you can name off a few other ones. What are some of the non-negotiables that a person needs to have if they want to be a part of this ecosystem. Okay, Stephen, uh, the first episode that we filmed, I don't yeah. know if you remember, yeah. there was three main core principles yeah. that I listed. I don't know if you remember yeah. them, yeah. that I live by, yeah. which obviously because I'm connected to Nick for so yeah. long, were Nick's core principles, which are core principles that exist inside this facility today. Discipline, commitment, and work ethic. Yeah. It's a short answer. It'll be the shortest segment on your podcast. Yeah, yeah, all right? Yeah, it's still the same. If you, don't, if you can't adhere yeah. to that, yeah. you're going to struggle yeah. because it's the program is going to keep up with discipline, commitment, and work ethic. Yeah, you also forgot standing on the left side versus the right side of the net. You might want to well, include yeah. that as well. That's just, that's also that's just a, one of those things <laughs> where... That's I mean, that's... No, 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 no. It's, yeah. it's just getting used to it. I mean, it was his first day. Just did, you know, and I change sides of the net all the time. Sometimes I change sides of the net. It's good. But we got to be on time to the program. Yeah. we got to work hard yeah. during the program. Yeah. we got to have discipline, commitment, and work ethic. And I think... All those core principles lead to tennis development, trying to realize your highest athletic ability. Those are the same for academics. 
it goes throughout the whole ecosystem. Yeah. So it's a real short answer, but I mean, specifically, that's it. That's it. You know what, actually, you, you mentioned uh, Sebastian Corda. Mm-hmm. And I remember last time we spoke, we were talking about top American players that you thought right. could, could yeah. uh, you know, were going to be the best. Right. Uh, you mentioned Sebastian Corda, but I've talked to others, and every like everyone I talk to says Sebastian Corda has the most potential. We saw him train the other day, right. uh, which was amazing. What do you think that? I'm just I, just out of curiosity, like knowing him, having been around him. What do you think he needs in order to really break through into that that next level, right? Okay. Into the, so, that top five, top ten, that that. I think Alex, we need to. Kind of like I need to qualify that answer a little bit because his dad Peter has just been his primary coach all along. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he, he's he. This is his training home, mm-hmm. but his dad is his his primary coach. Sure. So I can give you an answer from my outside opinion, yeah. but I don't have experience working with Sebastian day to day. Right. Okay. Cause his dad is his primary coach. We supplement whatever needs he has. We did send coaches with him back when he was entering uh, futures and things mm-hmm. to try to help out with Peter. Cause he couldn't travel. You remember his two daughters are two of the best pro LPGA golfers. Yeah, right. So crazy. it's a, it's a very successful athletic family. Okay. Yeah, right. So Sebastian, I think, it was ahead, you know, think about how he developed it. The average age of professional tennis guys is still 27. Yeah. Top 100 is still 27. Mm-hmm. So players we are talking about are way younger than the average age. And I think sometimes we have to make sure we give those young players time to develop, 100%. even though they made the jump quick, right? So I think Sebastian had a bit of a little injury that affected him this year. He played well in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then he got hurt and couldn't play for a while so again serving bigger will help him down the road in my outside opinion get him some more free points so he could turn his power game into easier balls Mm -hmm. i think that's one of the critical areas does he maximize whatever he should be is generating some easier points for him whether that be serve attacking second serves on returns a little bit more, maybe that's an area, because he's so solid from the back of the court and could take balls early, could play good defense, which is the modern day game. And he's a massive hitter. I mean, talk he, about he power. He can play really easy. Power. But it's smooth power, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yes. His dad has done clean. amazing with him, how smooth he is and efficient he yeah. is in his strokes. Peter has done amazing work with him on exact – easy footwork, so he looks like he's not doing much, but the ball really explodes off his racket. Yeah. And then speaking of players that you that you have direct experience with, I mean, we talked you know, about Boris Becker right. in the last podcast. Right. We mentioned Tommy Haas as right. well. Marcel um, Rios. Marcel Rios. Let's ch- but let's chat about, I know that you have plenty of stories with Tommy and right. just ex- amazing experiences with him. He was, I mean, it was... He showed a lot of love for the podcast, crazy. too. He reposted our... I mean, to see Tommy Haas reposting your, your uh, episode, episode. Uh, is, is, uh, is a trip. You know, it's, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a crazy thing. But let's talk about Tommy Haas a little bit Yeah, because we, we kind of grazed over yeah. him in the last yeah. one. He talked yeah. about his backhand, his complete game, and things yeah. like that. But, but the, the, I'll take a minute, interrupt me anytime you want on this, but the, the Tommy Haas story... I think if it's ever really told, 
in its entirety and detail, it's an amazing story. Because you got to remember the tennis crazed country of Germany following Boris Becker and Steffi Graf. Yeah. When you're following those legends, it's really hard to live up to that Big standard. Shoes. Just think about that, right? So Tommy's following them. And he chose, a, he chose a totally untraditional route by leaving the German tennis system and coming to America to come to tennis. His dad's a tennis coach. So he, he, he meets Nick. Tommy ends up moving here. Nick becomes not only his coach, father figure. This is 12 years old, not speaking that much English. I, I think it's amazing, just that one part of it, right? Mm -hmm. On the other side of that, though, he loved the German Federation system. So his dad was a tennis coach, and finances were not easy. Tennis is a very expensive sport. Mm -hmm. And if you upset the Federation there you, and you don't have that funding, it's really hard to do. So Tommy's story continues along with that. Um, I won't go into great detail. I'm limited to what I'll talk about on that. But in order to finance it, his dad had to actually have a business venture, which if you go later into Tommy's career, he was playing with a business venture that his dad formed to try to farm expenses at the younger age that eventually he had to pay back. That's documented in the media. I won't go into it much greater than that. Mm -hmm. But what I'm telling you about right there is when Tommy was playing, he had that weighing on him. And when I think about the 20 years he played, what he accomplished with that hanging over him is definitely not reported accurately. It's out there in the media, but it's amazing accomplishment because it weighed on him a lot. I think at times it also affected him mentally and made him a little bit more, you know, because it's a business and every every higher amount he earned, there was a, a give back. So we also know that happened outside of Tommy Haas, documented in tennis right now. Zarev had an issue with it. I don't know the details of it, but yeah. I'll just say that's in the media. I read it. Yeah. So I'm not saying anything that's private. Um, going further into Tommy's stories, I'll get into a couple of specific stories, but just trying to go over that. Um, he had two ankle surgeries when he was young. Through the course of his 20-year career, I think he's had six or seven surgeries. Wow. Three on the shoulder, hip, foot. I mean, this is hips, elbow, foot, if I'm not mistaken, okay? So when he was young, he had these surgeries. So he has overcome obstacles on injuries, overcome obstacles that he had to play for knowing in the back of his mind as a business to side to this. Um, I think going further than that, we were he was at his height, number two in the world, where his shoulder injury took him off the circuit for 13 months. And during that time, he was still playing. He was having shoulder problems. His mother and father were in a horrific motorcycle accident. Again, I'm not going to go into medical details because I think that's private stuff. But it's documented that they could have lost their lives in that accident. In fact, you know, he and I were coming back. He had to get an MRI. And we were driving back from St. Pete where the MRI was. And he got the phone call that his mom and dad were in a motorcycle accident. And they were being taken by medical helicopter to the hospital in St. Pete. We turned around and actually got to the hospital before they got there. He and I didn't know if they were even alive. 
So that's just one thing. And then to have to take time off from your career and rehab and all this stuff to see if they make it through it, which they did. And it's a good story, happy ending, because they did live through that and able to see him play again and all and come back to the top 10 in the world after three shoulder surgeries. So he has had a lot to deal with in overcoming obstacles that I think really aren't documented very well. Because a lot of, I think, traditional media look at him and all the pro tournaments he won. I'm going to say the number wrong. I don't remember if it's 15, 16, 17, how many titles he won, reaching two in the world. Well, maybe he didn't live up to his potential. I hate that. Because knowing what he overcame, I think it's amazing. Coming back to the top 10 in the world, I think it's happened twice. He won the comeback player of the year twice, where he had to stop and start. One time back to zero. He went down to lower levels of tennis, didn't mind doing it, to come back to 10 in the world after being two. A lot of players don't come back that well. So he's an amazing, I think, a real amazing story of that fight to come back, the drive and the willingness to overcome a lot of obstacles to do that. And lightening the moment a little bit or telling a few of the inside stories. Interrupt me if you want. But, like, there's so many, but just I picked a couple of them. I don't know if you realize that. I don't remember if I said this in our first podcast. So we were in Rome, and – He's, we're getting ready for the tournament. It's Friday night, and we're staying at a hotel called the Parco de Princi. This is the player hotel. All the players are in it. And at around 2 or 3 in the morning, we hear scre- I hear screaming in the halls. I didn't know what it was. And it's people down the hall yelling, there's a fire in the hotel to get your passport and get out. The fire alarm didn't go off, right? So I thought it was a prank. I didn't know. So I, I grab my passport and I look out the window and I see smoke. And I get to the hallway and I could see actual flames. So it was real. So I hurry downstairs and it's even worse downstairs on the outside of the building. So I quickly call the hotel, you know, get the hotel lobby phone and I call Tommy. And by some chance, this is back in the day of the modem where you had to plug the phone into the modem. Right, right, right. So I thought his phone wouldn't be plugged in. And I couldn't make it back up the stairs because the smoke was too thick. He answers the phone. And I'm screaming at him, just get your passport. Come down. No matter how much smoke is it, get down the stairs because the fire is on your floor. Well, luckily that night, he had noticed the stairwell. By some reason, he went up the stairwell. Something was four floors. Well, he gets out of his room. He said he couldn't see. And he felt the doors until the one opened and it was a stairwell and he runs down he had a white t-shirt on and i'll show you just he had his face covered like this and on the white t-shirt was the brown marks from where his lips were and his nose were that he was breathing it was a smoke marks so it's a real story that actually if you google it you'll see i don't remember how many died but there were several People died in that fire. Andy Roddick was on the the top floor and used his balcony to help people jump down from the little ledge there to his balcony. He put a mattress out there, and they had like 12 people were rescued from his balcony. Just to keep that story in perspective, people lost their lives there. And we were like, 
in that involved. And then he had to play the tournament three days later. That's just one story from the road. Another one I think uh, I'll talk about is uh, a personal one to me. It's a tough one because uh, my mom passed away from cancer. Tommy was coming back from an injury. And uh, he was playing and sort of struggling in the comeback, but having good results, but not getting deep into tournaments. And he's playing Houston. And it's like, I don't know, one of the first tournaments after my mom had passed. And somehow or another, he made it through the first round. He should have lost the match. Same thing happened in the second round. He's going completely mentally crazy, screaming and yelling and just ridiculous, okay? Dealing with himself, but he always yelled at me. You know, that was just his way of doing things. I never took it personally. I just sat there, you know, and, and I knew what he was going through. After the matches, sometimes we, we, we these, especially these two, were really big arguments, okay? It's just the way we communicated. Well, somehow or another, he started to find his game. And where I'm going in this story, it's just the first tournament he won after my mom's passing. And it was a heavily emotional moment, not only for me, but for him. So it was a unique experience in many ways. I believe my mom was looking down at him. And yet it's his comeback story, his first tournament back. It's quite amazing. You know, I'm just trying to think of a story that that tells deep inside of of our relationship going on from that is definitely you know getting to the semifinals of a slam anytime you're you're doing that those are are trips you remember those were australian tournaments uh the australian opens is an amazing grand slam the atmosphere and tommy always uh thrived in those atmospheres winning in Stuttgart, I'm sorry, Vienna first, then Stuttgart back to back, two weeks in a row, well, highlights. And uh, Tommy, when he gets on a roll, he eats at the same restaurant over and right, over. Right. So you are required <laughs> to eat. Not only to eat, but to eat the same thing until he loses. <laughs> oh my gosh. You have to eat the same yeah, thing? Yeah, that's you okay. Couldn't... Yeah, that's all right in Stuttgart in Vienna. Yeah. Because schnitzel and German food, right? It's yeah. okay, right? Yeah. Well, let's move on to another tournament, Lyon, France. It's in the winter. It's an indoor tournament in the, uh, October, right? Now, at that time of year, the players are starting to get tired and a little, you know, a little bit like tired of the road. Yeah. So he, he says, at the beginning of the week in Lyon, I just want to go to McDonald's just to get, just to get something different, right? I, okay, I said, no problem. Let's go. All right. Guess what? He made finals of Lyon. I had to eat at McDonald's. Every night that's for ten days, because so we same went there. Thing, the same thing. Yeah, well, that's how it rolled. He yeah. went there the first night. Okay, he said we're gonna go back tonight. I didn't think too much of it in the second night because it, the tournament hadn't started. We'll graduate to a French restaurant, yeah. right? Yeah. Come on, that's normal. Yeah. Well, he plays his first round. He goes, we're going to McDonald's. Oh no! I said, Tommy, no, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. Oh yes, we are. Until I lose, we're, we're not doing this. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, a second-round loss here may not be the worst thing in the world. You know <laughs> what I mean? My gut. This is my back, my mind. And it goes all the way through. He actually had match point. He actually lost to Karecha with having match point, who hit a backhand passing shot winner from a tough position. So, so you have funny stories like that. You have That's real personal ones. 
you have things that affected Tommy. All these things that I listed and many, many more affected Tommy's career that he overcome all these obstacles to get to where we're at. This has been a long answer. Sorry. No, I mean, first it's of all, so in, awesome. in, in, I mean, the stories are incredible. Um, but one thing that said, I mean, Tommy's resilience is, I, I personally had, had no idea. Where, where does that come from, do you think? I mean, where did he, I mean, is that just an innate thing that he had? I mean, you've been, you were with him for, for so long, you know him, right, since he was, since he was a boy. Is that something that was always been a part of him? I, th I think it's always been a part of him. I think his, his family, his mom and dad always had him uh, in a good position to overcome obstacles as a young person and taught him as a very young person not to worry about a defeat. It was interesting because he has a horrible temper at times on the court, right. yet he's able to get over a defeat and move on to the next day pretty quickly. So you had a, a guy that was really temperamental but knew how to overcome defeat and move on to the next opportunity. So scale that into his all the obstacles he dealt with in pro tennis and onward and things like that. He's able to do that with all the injuries, you know. Right. At 12 years old, you, he had to have two ankle surgeries. Wow. You know, he sprained his ankle so bad they had to repair him. That, okay, he's 12, you'll bounce back. But when you have a shoulder surgery in your prime at 20, what, 21 or 22, it also can set you back, you know. Mm. Side note to that. i got to do a personal side note. Without Tommy's shoulder surgery, I wouldn't have met my wife, Sybil, boss Amy, who is – the yoga, uh, was a yoga instructor at the time. I know I'm sidetracking, but no, no, that's great. Tommy's shoulder surgery, I met my wife at that time, and we couldn't date because I was traveling 32 weeks. She said she wouldn't date somebody that traveled 32 weeks. It made sense to me. Yeah. Well, Tommy hurt, got hurt, and found out he had to have shoulder surgery. So he's going to miss, you know, a large chunk of time, seven months to a year. So I, I called her, short story, I called her and said, you know, hey, Sybil, um, I just wanted to let you know I'm going to be in Bradenton a lot because Tommy's having shoulder surgery, so can we go out? So she agreed, and that amount of time enabled us to not only go out but fall in love, which turned out Tommy ended up having a second one because he overhealed, and he needed not a big one, but he had to have it released, so it kept him out another, you know, six months, and one thing led to another, we were able to fall in love, which now we've been together 20 years, married 16 years. Amazing. And Tommy still claims if I wouldn't have got injured, that would have never happened. Oh, so awesome. Tommy still takes credit for that, you that's, know? That's awesome. That, this, I mean, the stories. The McDonald's in love. I mean, McDonald's in love. McDonald's, yeah. McDonald's so, terrible. Uh, coach, I just, I just want to let you know it is 11-10. Yeah, uh, I know you have that. You had that lesson eleven, or did you? Do yeah, we're good. It, any uh, rapid fire round, rapid fire. Round. I love any, it. anything. Rapid fire. Got to be quick. Anything off the hip. Go. Just go. Okay. Anything. Anything. Open season. What's, your, what's your favorite meal at McDonald's? <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> what did you eat? What I have to. Eat? Okay, I had to eat. I ate a quarter pound of fries and a coke. I mean, what <laughs> can you do? I don't know. Yeah. I hate it. Favorite though. favorite tournament you've traveled to? Is yeah, favorite tournament. Yeah, favorite tournament. Favorite tournament. Let, let me think, because there's a lot, right? I think the favorite ones are the ones that are special when the player won, yeah. okay? So I, I really – Stuttgart was my – the highlight – Stuttgart, the Vienna-Stuttgart two weeks was my favorite tournament. It also had a special personal thing because I already told you my mom had cancer and she her health was ailing, and I knew this. 
but she told me to stay on the road with Tommy because she could see the matches. They were always on TV. So those two are the take uh, emotional presence and a physical presence that I like those two tournaments. Got it. Aggressive baseliner or counterpuncher? Who? Pick. We, what do you, we, you have to pick. Oh, I'm aggressive. We, we, we coaching aggressive baseliner. There's <laughs> yeah. no, no question. Serve for, oh, sorry, return from like four meters back or return on top of the baseline? No, you got to do everything now. <laughs> Nowadays, you got to do everything, not one or the other. Because the modern day players are returning from way back. Yeah. I'm a big believer in practicing returns from all over. Yeah. There's an answer to your question. Rapid fire answer is aggressively returning second serves from on the baseline. And I'll tell you something. Stop. I can't answer it rapid fire. Because we have WTA <laughs> and ATP. I'm dealing. I have yeah. both groups. Yeah. I have a boys group and a girls group of teenagers in morning boys, girls in the afternoon. So I got to have to answer that in both ways. On girls tennis, attacking second serve returns is possibly the best chance to hit the first ball at the best strike zone in any level of, of tennis in girls tennis, from 12s to pros, okay? There's a lot of research out there right now that say it's better to serve aggressively in female tennis on first serve because mm -hmm. the second serve is irrelevant in yeah. many cases. What I mean by relevant, the stats play out 50-50 on win-loss percentage yeah. on second serves mm -hmm. in girls' tennis. So we got to coach it. Yeah. Aggressive second serve returning in girls' tennis. And in men's tennis, you might have to vary that position based on who you're playing. Or in modern-day tennis, sometimes the big defensive return position it gives you a full cut and you could hit it hard from there and then move in yeah. to aggressive baseline. Right. Sorry for the long last answer. last question. Go. Is, it could be more. Is longer. the Just Slap podcast your favorite tennis podcast? Yes. <laughs> Let's go. Last Let's question. Go. Stop on that one. 100%. Red, guys, thank you so much. Let's do something down the road. Yeah, yeah. we're going to do it again. Guys, thank you for your support. Hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. Come down to IMG. Check it out. We love you. Peace. Peace.